I don't know, after I took a few bites at lunch, I immediately felt sleepy, so I hope you're going to stick with me this afternoon. I do think this is important. Um, and again, it's it's just a joy. I know it is it, it is for me, but I'm, I'm, it is for our, our church as a whole. And a blessing to be back here. Um, I'm going to start by just reading or quoting a couple of verses, one that we used this morning. Uh, the first one is the one I used this morning, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Short, succinct. But the one that kind of embodies that idea but expresses so much more is verse 21. He that hath my commands and keepeth it, keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And this part, he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And so, you know, we've been emphasizing obedience, but it's the reward of that obedience that, that is so special, that the Lord will make himself known to us. So those are just going to kind of be opening text, and the title of my message today is Baptism and the Folly of Fundamentalism. And uh, just want you to think with me about some things today. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for putting within our souls what we just sang about, I trust, an, an ardent feeling. And Lord, I pray that it is, that it's our chief treasure is your love. And so I pray today that um, that would be our motivation, a desire to know and do your will and to walk in your love. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by acknowledging certain practical, and honest truths. Number one, I, I have never really suffered. For being a New Testament Christian, you know, there have been certainly been slights and mockery of family at times, a loss of friends over the years. I guess I've made a few more than I've lost, but it's pretty close, it seems like. Uh, being called names by other Christians and preachers, sometimes being hated by neighbors and others in our community, sometimes being the star of Facebook. Um, that's humor. <laughs> but really, these all seem pretty trivial to me. Pretty trivial when I know what Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty eight. He said, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. I think it's hard for us in the United States to really understand what he's saying there because we think of the cross as jewelry. Uh, he's talking about serious suffering. And my Lord and his apostles and Christians throughout church history have suffered at times indescribable tortures. Uh, 
I've never been beaten, never been jailed. Been threatened a few times, but not by anybody that really could cause me any damage. And I've, I've always had plenty of food. I've always lived in a comfortable home. Uh, material, I've, I've had and have material wealth that others who bear the name of Christ around the world, they couldn't even uh, dream of having what I have and enjoy. Um, it really hasn't cost me anything to serve the Lord. There are, number two, there are many Christians throughout history who, and people who live today, not in the United States probably, but who have, well, I, I take part of that, just the suffering at least, but Christians throughout history and many Christians today, people that live today who have walked more closely to the Lord who have paid more in sacrifice, they've been more diligent in service than I have. And yet the things that I'm going to preach today is, is going to be critical of some of the things that such fine Christians, and I mean that sincerely, genuinely, I'm going to be critical of their doctrine, their practice, and the outcome of their service. So... I want you to understand, I'm not saying that I'm a better Christian than they are. I am not the ultimate judge. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. They don't have to give account to me. What I am saying is that James, what James 4, 17 says, which is, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If the Lord has allowed us to have a greater understanding of the teaching of some doctors in the New Testament, and yet, because we may know some more things, and we excuse our disobedience to those doctrines because others don't understand them or don't practice them, the Lord's not going to excuse us for that. Uh, in Luke twelve forty eight, Jesus said, For to whomsoever much is given him, him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed the more, him, uh, they'll, they'll ask the more. Anyways, the reference is to God. Knowing more doesn't mean you're a better Christian. But it means you'll be held accountable for more. Um, Jesus told us to show our love to him by our obedience he promised his children that he would reveal himself he would manifest himself he would love us if we do obey his commandments so before we get into our, our topic today I want to briefly trace a theme through Matthew's gospel and of course you could find it anywhere but here in Matthew 3 and verse 13, it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So, you know, Jesus lived up in Nazareth. I'm the, I'm the nation of Israel right here, the land body. 
Nazareth and Galilee are up in the northern part of the Israel. And then down in the south, you have Jerusalem. And let's see, for, on, for your side, on the east of that is the Jordan River. And that's where John the Baptist was. So about a 60-mile distance that, that Jesus didn't pick up a taxi. He walked that distance. So then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. You know, just do what I'm telling you to do. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So again, Jesus walked about 60 miles to begin his ministry by being baptized by the man the only man that God called to institute New Testament baptism. He's the only man. started with John. Jesus refused John's objection. I mean, he knew that John knew the man he was talked to as the Messiah. But John, Jesus refused his objection and said that he had to fulfill all righteousness. Um, he had to be baptized. Jesus had to be baptized as our substitute. He didn't have to repent. so. But he was thereby laying the foundation for building the first New Testament church. Think about that. Jesus had to be baptized before he and his disciples could baptize anybody. Now, most of the twelve, I'm convinced, were baptized by John already. But Jesus had to be baptized. And when he obeyed that, when he fulfilled that requirement of righteousness, God then declared that he was well pleased with his son. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. This is, of course, when Jesus was being uh, tempted by Satan. But he answered and said, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so Jesus rejected Satan's temptation, and he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he declared that man is to live by obeying every word of God. Not parts, not the fundamental doctrines, but every word of God. Look at chapter 5. In verse 18, Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a pretty key passage, most people think. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, 
shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus stated that, that in God's kingdom, that greatness was defined by obeying all the commandments, the great and the least, and that it was a serious offense to disregard the least command of Scripture. Let's go to the end of Matthew 28. Here the Lord's, He's already risen from the dead. He's been spent 40 days instructing, meeting with His disciples, the church. And then before He ascended in heaven, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power. And again, the emphasis of that, the emphasis of that word power there is authority. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So Jesus made it clear that the commission that He gave to New Testament churches was not just evangelizing. It was equally baptizing and then instructing their converts to observe. It's a Greek word, tereo, translated most of the time to keep, but it means to obey, uh, to guard everything that he taught. And of course he told them the Holy Spirit would instruct them more about churches and the New Testament and so forth. So it's, it's essential that we understand that as Christianity is obeying everything that we have in the New Testament, everything that Jesus gave to us as an instruction. And of course it will take any Christian, all Christians, more than a lifetime to fully learn and know and, you know, <laughs> all the teaching of the New Testament. But it's this commandment, I believe, that has is probably the main thing that distinguishes New Testament Baptists from the rest of professing Christianity. It is a desire and a commitment to obey all that the Lord has given to us. And so my argument to you this afternoon is very simple, and that is this. In spite of the admirable biblical qualities of much of Protestant fundamentalism, the anti-scriptural position of minimizing certain New Testament doctrines by fundamentalism, always produces apostasy. And it requires that New Testament Baptist churches uphold the purity of the New Testament faith by safeguarding New Testament baptism. 
Everybody get that? Fundamentalism minimizes much of the teaching of the New Testament. If we're going to hold fast to the faith, we have to hold fast to baptism and other important doctrines in the New Testament. So I want to start with just uh, the premise, practices, and Protestantism of fundamentalism. Uh, American fundamentalism is a, move, is a movement, first of all, it is established upon Protestantism. Uh, I don't, probably, I don't, probably most of you, the only church history you've had has been here. That's good. But Protestant fundamentalism, or I should say the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, was, now get this, was a protest. Now that's where Protestantism comes from. It was a protest against Roman Catholicism. We all got that. And then the other word, Reformation. They were not trying to get rid of Roman Catholicism. They were trying to reform it. A protest against it and an attempt to reform Roman Catholicism. And perhaps it was led by genuinely saved men. You would think so. Their two rallying cries were, uh, sola fide, which means by faith alone, and sola scriptura, by the, you know, the scriptures alone. So you're only saved by faith, and the scriptures is our authority. That was their rallying cries. But in spite of that, Protestantism retained many unscriptural doctrines of Roman Catholicism. Amillennialism. There's no genuine thousand-year reign. It's just, there's no millennium, but everything's going to gradually get better and so forth. Well, actually, we're in the millennium now. Christ is ruling and reigning. Uh, the universal invisible church. Every, virtually, all over the world, virtually all of Christendom thinks that, I mean, I read these doctrinal statements. I come to the good churches, I look at them online, and they say the church is all the saints around the world who believe in the Lord. Which just makes no sense. There's, there's no assembly there. They held on to allegorical interpretation. In other words, you know, there's some hidden meaning in the clear statements of Scripture rather than taking it as they... Protestants held on to the critical text, which is the text that the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Church uses. Critical text is, you know, the modern text. They held on to Augustinian predestination. Uh, Reformed theology is Calvinism plus amillennialism and all these other things. And Augustine came up with that, but the Protestants adopted it. They certainly established the authority of denominational structures. There is no denominational structure in the New Testament. They hold on to infant baptism, which is a damning doctrine. And we could go on and on, but these are some key ones that you should understand and should have some understanding of how they're... It's apostasy, it's a replacing of New Testament doctrine with man-made doctrines. 
And there were, in the 1500s, many uh, Baptist churches, New Testament churches in existence where the pastors actually reached out to the reformers and tried to encourage them to come all the way over to a, a, a Bible-based Christianity. Just teach what the Bible says. And uh, the Protestants rejected their influence. I'm sure there, there were men that did, but by and large the Protestants rejected, not only rejected, but persecuted Baptists for trying to get them to come all the way to the New Testament. Um, if you know anything about the Reformation, you know these names. Zwingli, John Calvin, Martin Luther. All of these men persecuted New Testament Christians. They, they persecuted Baptists. And I don't mean they put their names in the paper and made fun of them. And the result is that Protestantism was largely unbiblical. They did preach salvation by faith, but they developed their own. They withdrew from the Roman Catholic, or they were put out of the Roman Catholic uh, denominational structure, but they established their own. The same thing. It's nothing, nothing of that in the, in the Bible. They also established state-controlled churches, you know, their national government controlled the churches. And one of the biggest proofs of that is here we are in the nation with, the, I guess, the, free, the greatest freedom of religion perhaps ever in history. And yet in our founding, 13 colonies, 12 of them had state churches. The only one that didn't was where Baptists were, Rhode Island, you know. And thank the Lord that the the writers of our Constitution were influenced by Baptists and the United States Constitution rejected state churches. Actually, I guess maybe the states could, perhaps, but, you know, you you didn't have the United States government saying that this, this, you're going to have to go by the Bible or Protestantism or Roman Catholicism or whatever, but they did the very next ne- best thing next to the state churches, and that is the dominational structure. And so you had the Presbyterian denomination, the Methodist denomination. You had the um, Anglican denominations. That was here in North Carolina. The Episcopal uh, Church was the state church here in North Carolina. And I grew up in Alamance County. There's Alamance Battleground over there. And uh, it was it was Episcopal Church that, with the governor, the British governor who tried to wipe out the Baptist over there. I, I didn't know any of that growing up. But it was Episcopal. Then you've got Lutheran, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, and on and on and go. And obviously these denominations exercise authority over the churches. Christ is the head of a New Testament church, a local church. Um, And along with the Roman Catholicism, they did one other major thing, and that is they built schools, their own schools to train preachers. Now, if any any of us here today, we just grown up without any knowledge of 
um, church history, and we looked at Princeton, Harvard, Duke, the, the Ivy League schools and all that. We think of the, the highest educational systems in our country. They were all started to teach preachers, to train them. And yet they're some of the most atheistic institutions in the world. But that was a Roman Catholic system. And again, I've, you've heard me mention before, uh, Alma Mata. Everybody says that. They have no idea what it says. It's Virgin Mother. It, it was a name that Roman Catholics had for the school system. And so these denominations, again, ex- exercise authority. And so by the 1800s, these, all these Protestant groups, these denominations, and their schools had apostate bishops. You know, that was not a local pastor, but a control over several churches in a region. Uh, pastors as well, they're training the pastors. Professors who denied inspiration, denied the deity of Christ, denied the miracles of Christ, denied the virgin birth of Christ, denied the second coming. And there were still believers in these systems, but they're there together with apostates. Actually, Princeton is basically considered in American church history the prince of all the great religious schools. What a totally atheistic place that is now. And there were some great teachers, they were all reformed, who taught there. Charles Hodgett, he and his son, um, what's the guy's name starts with a B that wrote the book on inspiration. (laughs) Anyway, a lot of great professors, so-called there, conservative professors, but this is this is the way it was. It was not Bible Christianity. It was a Protestant system that's like Roman Catholicism. And when you believe, and I'm going to, this is the next point, the premise of American fundamentalism is that a person must believe certain basic fundamental doctrines in order to be a true Christian. Why? Well, who doesn't agree with that? But that is not what the New Testament churches teaches. I grew up attending a Grand Presbyterian church. And every Sunday in church, we would quote the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Sounds good. We heard that this morning. In Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Well, you might have some objection to that. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. As part of the statement, we made every. And though I was taught that we believe in a universal church. 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's pretty good. All the thing about it is our church that repeated that was a, a totally apostate church. I never was under, at least that I remember, maybe when I was one or two or something like that, I, I never remember having a pastor, a minister there that was a saved man. But they repeated that creed. I was sprinkled as a baby. Um, There was no believer's baptism. Then I went, you know, when I became a Christian and was a fundamentalist, I recited this every time in chapel. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation, virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, His identification as the Son of God, His vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of His blood on the cross, the resurrection of His body from the tomb, His power to save men from sin, the new birth through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. That's an excellent statement of basic doctrines. But it says nothing about what a church is. Jesus said he would build his church. That was his work, to build his church. But they say nothing about a church, nothing about the second coming, nothing about what Bible, nothing about baptism. And this is the fortress of the faith. Uh, had professors there were Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, some Calvinist, some Arminian, etc. And what fundamentalism did, so you can see here's a statement of faith by a liberal Presbyterian church that never taught while I was there that you need to be born again. Sprinkled babies. So you've got a you know, what's called a church, and then you got a school that's a fundamental school, and basically, except for one thing, their statements of faith are exactly the same. That's because the United States, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, at one time, was orthodox. But when you saw, you seek to establish essential versus non-essential doctrines. Which doctrines are non-essential? Let me give you an example of that. It was probably about 20 years ago I read about a pastor in Florida who said they believed uh, believed in the five fundamentals. And I just looked at it on a website yesterday, a fundamentalist website, and they said that he had to believe these five fundamentals. They're all about Christ. But the only thing this pastor said believed in the five fundamentals, but she was a lesbian. You think that's going to, the five fundamentals are going to help her? What does it mean if you're a lesbian and you say you believe in the inspiration of the Bible? <laughs> it means nothing. Is this New Testament Christianity? Five fundamental doctrines? And so now we can have fellowship with anybody that believes in the the deity, the virgin birth, the virus atonement, the resurrection from the dead, 
And I, I think usually they add uh, inspiration of Scripture there, but th- this is not New Testament Christianity. This is not the Christianity that Jesus taught. And when you're deciding what is essential in the Bible and what is not essential, that is not Christianity. The fundamentalist, I, I, I was fundamentalist. There are some contexts where I would still say I'm a fundamentalist. If somebody thinks a fundamentalist, somebody believes the Bible, willing to fight for it, that's me. But that's not that's not what it means. Fundamentalism was in the initial it didn't they didn't even separate. So in the Presbyterian Methodists and all these different doctrines, you had fundamentalists and liberals. The fundamentalists fought against them and tried to expose them. But they didn't even separate from them. They stayed in the same denominations for a long time. And so the, the idea of fundamentalism is totally flawed. It is unscriptural. And one of the great effects, the one of the great results of American fundamentalism, and they would say, and their goal was to save Christianity. But one of the great effects is that fundamentalism influenced Bible-believing Baptists to accept Protestantism. So here we have churches that believe in the inspiration, believe all the New Testament, believe that baptism, believe that all of it's important. In order to help those who were fighting for the faith once delivered, instead of influencing the Protestants, now... Baptists think they're Protestants. And they're willing to hold, they're willing to fellowship with these others who believe tremendously different doctrines from each other. Another great influence that came along as, as a result of fundamentalism is that is the, the modern megachurch is a, a product of fundamentalist and false evangelism. Uh, the influence of evangelists. Billy Sunday was a Presbyterian. Bob Jones was a Methodist. Billy Graham was a, Pres- uh, a Baptist. Now, I've I've heard recently again some of the sermons of Billy Billy Graham. Our, our church have, has grown up here and preaching against him. <laughs> if you were to listen to what he preached in the fifties, uh, you would think that's the best preaching of evangelists I've ever heard. I mean, I'm talking when he went over to England and so forth. He preached hard, but he later said, "You know, a guy could never know the name of Jesus and could have salvation." But these evangelists, again, I just mentioned three of them. There are many others. They would hold great citywide meetings, and really hundreds and even thousands of people. Billy Graham used to fill up you know, a football stadium, baseball stadium. He would fill up and people would come, and they'd give the invitation, and these folks would come down out of the stands and come to the front of the pulpit there and then have a Methodist, sometimes a Roman Catholic, all kinds of denominational people there, talking to them about salvation. I guess that's what they talked to him about.
And so it's just one big happy Christendom with no real distinction in doctrine. No baptism. Who got baptized if they went to a Billy Graham uh, preaching meeting? Or, or who got baptized if they went to a Bob Jones Sr. evangelistic crusade? He was a Methodist. Is it going to sprinkle the people that respond? Are they going to put them in churches? And so churches had to keep up with these popular evangelists. And as a result of that, we had independent Baptist churches that held meetings like these evangelist meetings. So you invite in, you do whatever you can to get the unsaved to be a part of the church, and you preach the gospel, that's all you do. Preach over and over. And, well, you teach them how to run a bus. Or some of you don't even, wouldn't even recognize this stuff, but how to swallow goldfish. And so there was an order, uh, newspaper called The Sword of the Lord. And I think they're primarily responsible for promoting the Romans' road evangelism. Now, I believe the points of the Romans' road. Man is the center. You start with that. You talk about Christ down on the cross. But the way that you work the Romans' road is to mention each of these things and just move to the next point without any real explanation. And when you get through, you say, would you like to pray and receive Christ as your Savior? Now, I assume that most of us here have done evangelism in our lives. And I've, I was taught to do evangelism like this from a Bob Jones grad, man that I really owe a lot to. But uh, I worked for them, that their church one summer. I don't know how many, I don't know, maybe, maybe 50 professions of faith. How many of you think came to church? Anybody want to take a guess? How about that? Because I was just doing what I was taught, getting people to pray. I, I was genuine. I was trying to do but I was taught this form of evangelism. You pray and you're saved, and that you, you're taught to tell them you're saved. You know. And the sword of the Lord, one of the big things it did is it reported, I think it's every week it came out, you know, was, anyway, every week, and every at least every month, they reported what was the largest church in each state in in the country. Because that's what the competition was all about, having the largest or the fastest growing church in North Carolina or in Georgia or in Missouri or wherever, the fastest growing church. I'm not making any of this up. This is just this is just factual history. And the first editor of the Sword of the Lord was John R. Rice. And John R. Rice said this. This is close to an exact quote. If a church does not baptize 400 people a year, it is not doing the job. Well, we, all, we might as well just quit and go home. 
If it's not evangelizing, if it's not baptizing 400 people a year, well, you know what that causes people to do? It causes them to do what I saw at First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana when I went there for a pastor's conference. And the church pastor got up and said, we've been sending our soul winners out into the city of Hammond, Indiana and to see who could see the most people saved in the like the previous week. And there was some lady that was awarded that. And while they were doing that afternoon, baptistries back here, person come down to the water, they'd baptism, go out that way. That went on for a couple hours of people supposedly they had led to the Lord. And that woman, in a week's time, according to them, led 600 people to go to hell. The next editor of the Sword of the Lord was Curtis Hudson. Curtis Hudson, I've read his pamphlet that says that repentance is a false doctrine. It's not a part of salvation. And of course, the, the star of the Sword of the Lord eventually was Jack Hiles. These are the type of guys that made fun of church discipline. No exposition of Scripture. You pick out a text, you have some stories, and you call on people to be saved. So you got churches, the largest churches in each state in America who are supposed to be independent Baptists, who will not practice church discipline, who do not exposit Scripture, and who basically have people who are totally ignorant of Bible doctrine. Now, again, there's some that were a lot better than that. And I think there are many, many pastors who were influenced by that, who were genuine, and many as a result of that, whose lives and ministries were ruined because of that influence. And one of the major confusions, the result of all that, so we've gone from Roman Catholicism and the Protestantism into American evangelicalism, fundamentalism, fighting against false doctrine, putting a big emphasis on evangelism but taking a false method, not carrying out church discipline. I mean, how many passages are there, major passages in the New Testament, that teach some form of church discipline? Read through and count them. But the resulting confusion is this. What is a New Testament church? Now, men do not have the authority to baptize. John's the only one that had that. Churches have the authority to baptize. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His church, he said his church because there are all kinds of churches. A church is an assembly. In Acts, there are several examples where the word assembly appears, but it's the same Greek word, ecclesia, is church. There is an assembly at this town, at that turn, there's 
Uh, some of those assemblies were <laughs> gathered to try to kill Paul. But it's not a church. His church is a church defined by the teaching of the New Testament. And Jesus said this to one of the greatest churches in church history in Romans 2, uh, Revelation 2.5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come to thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. This church has commended everything up to the very last point. You've left your first love. The church at Ephesus. Paul was the one the Lord used to start that church. Timothy was the pastor for a number of years of that church. Great works. But he said, I'm going to... You know, if, if the Lord takes your light away, you don't have any light. In Revelation 3, 1, one of those seven churches there, unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the, se- the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. It's not because all of them got COVID. Spiritually, the church was dead. And so a church can go from being a New Testament church to being not a church, even though it has a name, First Baptist Church. Lighthouse Baptist Church, Calvary Baptist. How many Calvary Baptists are there? You know, in just a few years from being a church that's doing great works that God praises and saying, I'm going to remove your light. Church says we need to grow. Well, we're chasing people away with church discipline. Well, we need to back off of that. We need to have a little more entertaining music. We need to quit preaching dress standards. Even the Old Testament says some forms of dress are an abomination to God. And on and on you go. You remove, you just preach the fundamentals, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, His miracles, His rising from the dead. His, you don't even have to preach coming again. That's too divisive. The Protestant fundamentalism defined a true church as one that held on to certain basic doctrine. Now look, I, I'm, I'm no judge of any church that believes the Bible, Protestant fundamentalists, whatever they are. But I'm telling you that the premise of fundamentalism is detrimental to New Testament Christianity. I read an article yesterday. A man, I was a member for a short time. Well, I guess I wasn't a member, but I did go there during the summer when I was in school. I taught Sunday school, drove a bus. One of the, one of the best expositors of Scripture I, I've ever sat under who has become reformed in his doctrine and was, had an article yesterday. It was a good article. He's a Baptist, but he wants Presbyterians to come to his church. But he's, you know, he explained to him that sprinkling isn't isn't baptism. <laughs> well, Calvinism's not New Testament either. So, 
But these are forces that have ruined in the United States Baptist churches. The Southern Baptist Convention. I think basically we could say that Sandy Creek is the start of the Southern Baptist Convention. A church with 600 members in the middle of nowhere during the 1700s. And yet, as they evangelized all over the southeast, they kept holding their preachers' meetings, and eventually it got more and more structured until we had the Southern Baptist Convention. And you know, today, I believe this is correct. You could, because I, I know a church east of here, that um, if you left the convention, you could possibly lose your building. And that's, that's not like it is in other denominations, but anyway. So this leads us up to the necessity of New Testament Baptist churches guarding the faith once delivered. And, of course, I'm referring to Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you the common salvation, that's the fundamentals, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. That's the New Testament. What a difference. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I mean, it was once delivered. It's not going to change. You don't edit. You don't add to or take away. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turned the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't say that. Jude, the Lord's half-brother, said they were ungodly and turned the precious grace of God into lasciviousness. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy. Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt know what hour I will come on thee. So basically, a genuinely New Testament church, a Baptist church is one that keeps repenting. It keeps being corrected by Scripture. And by repenting, it holds fast. Oh, we've let this slip a little bit. We need to get that back in order. John the Baptist was specifically chosen by God to preach the gospel, introduce the Messiah. (laughs) Nobody else. Here's a guy that comes out there, what, about six months he was born six months before Jesus. Comes out there and starts saying, "Get the, the Messiah's coming. You need to repent and get right. Nobody else is baptizing. They didn't do that in the Old Testament. He calls on the... And, and of course, what I was thought by Protestants is that John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. Well, I can show you that John the Baptist was not an Old Testament prophet. In Acts 19, verse 4, Paul told what John preached. And he said this, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, they agree with that, saying unto the people, 
that they should believe on Him which should come after Him, that is on Christ Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's preaching on returning from your sins and receiving Christ as your Lord. That's New Testament gospel. That's what John preached. Uh, Jesus Himself, of course, is the founder, the builder of New Testament churches. He submitted to John's baptism. I mean, that looks like a pretty serious thing to me. And reading through my Bible this past year, you know, when I read through my Bible, a lot of times I'll look for particular themes or whatever, and I I just, it astounded me how much the Gospels say about John. Jesus is the greatest man born of women. John didn't want to baptize Jesus because Jesus was perfect. And he said, we need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus started baptizing. And uh, they baptized those who repented and believed. And this is the only way. I got that in all caps. The only way given in the Bible for entrance into a New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, you know what it says there. Peter got up and preached at Pentecost. Thousands. No telling how many Jews were there from all over the world, it says. He preached that Jesus was the Christ. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He didn't say pray this prayer. He said repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they did. But it also says that, I don't know how much longer he preached, but it says with many other words he instructed them. And it says that those people, those that received the word were baptized and what? Added unto the church. Well, the church is already meeting in Acts chapter 1. They had a first business meeting, well, at least after Jesus was gone, first business meeting, voted in another pastor and prayed and so forth. Gave the number of how many were on the membership roll. And they were baptized into that church. That's the way it works. The New Testament local church is the body of Christ. And nobody believes that except for Baptists. Those who are born again and commanded by the Spirit of God to be baptized into a local church body. Here's the proof of that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Paul's writing to a single church, one church, the church at Corinth. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. That church was the body of Christ and, and the, the individual people were members and yet chapter 12, people take that to mean, well, part of the body's over in Japan, part of the body's in Russia, South America, some in the United States. That's not an assembly. And that's not the body of Christ. But what he says before that is this in verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Every Christian, he's saying, is baptized into a local church whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and all been made to drink in the one Spirit. In other words, he's assuming like we are, 
that people are genuinely born again and they are baptized because the Holy Spirit of God instructs them to respond that way when they hear the command of Scripture. Jesus stated that by His authority, that this is the Great Commission, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And when a member of a New Testament church goes to another New Testament church, we accept Jesus' scriptural authority. For example, in Acts 18.27, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So where he was a member... They wrote him and exhorted this other church to receive him, who, when he was come, helped him much, which had believed through grace. In Romans 16, verse 1, I command you, I command in you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she had need of. She had been a sucker of many of myself. So here's Paul writing to uh, tell her that. You know, that, this church needs to receive her there at their church. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send in you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow sober, but your messenger, he that ministered unto my wants. So he sent in another man there. There's supposed to, Philippians 2, 29, right after that. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Colossians 4, 10 Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom he received commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. Now, when Paul got saved, they didn't want to receive him. He'd been going around putting Christians in jail, having them killed and so forth. And so when Paul, who got saved on the way to Damascus and was baptized there and received into the fellowship there, it says, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. It wasn't loose, just a bunch of guys hanging around. We believe the Lord. That's the members of a church. They were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he'd seen the Lord in the way and how he'd spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out. Why? Because <laughs> one of their reputable Christians in that church said, this guy knows the Lord. I'm affirming that his testimony is genuine. But what if a professed believer comes to our church and there's a question about his doctrine or the doctrine of his church or the practice of his church? For example, in Acts chapter 9, there's 26 to 28. Let me see if I've got that on my... Okay, yeah, I've got it. Here you go. Acts 9, 26, 28. When Paul was come to Jerusalem... Well, that's what I just, that's what I just read to you. They had questions. Was this man a killer? Or was he a genuine disciple? In Acts 19, 
Look there. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We haven't so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. He said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. So so the Protestants say, See, John's baptism is Old Testament. Well, that's not what Paul said. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying that unto the people they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they had heard this and realized they really didn't understand what was being preached, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul questioned them. And they said they were baptized in John. We should say, praise God, baptized by John, no question about that. No. There's some question you realize they didn't understand what they'd done. In Romans 16... Verse 16 and 17. I'm going to get myself straightened out here. Um, Romans 16, verse 16 and 17. All right, here we go. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The church of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions, offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Is the Calvinist a save person? Could be. Don't receive him into your church. Don't receive him into your church. He's preaching false. He's going to be spreading false doctrine. Or what about John writing to people who have a different idea of this is a church or a woman? I think it's actually a woman that and the church meets in her house. In Second John, he said, uh, "That's." I think it is said in general. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things to which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So John has taught them, and he's saying, you've got to be careful. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, In other words, don't let him preach. Don't give him a place to stay. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Well, that's unloving. If a professing believer comes from a church called a fundamentalist church and it baptizes babies, should we accept their baptism? Anybody can answer. I mean, we know that baptism is believer's baptism. It happens after somebody who understands and who chooses of their own to receive Christ and to follow in baptism. Spranking a baby, baptize, whatever, even you immerse him, is wrong. What if a church preaches easy believism? 
What if they say that repentance is a false doctrine? What if they do not discipline their church members? What if they use allegorical interpretation? What if they believe in amillennialism? You know that, I mean, I hadn't actually counted it, but they say, somebody has, and they say one out of every four verses in the New Testament is prophetic. If they believe in amillennialism, they basically have wiped away one quarter of the New Testament. What if they hold to the critical text? Well, uh, I did. What if they believe in evolution? Now, what we basically have, and I'm, I'm getting pretty close to the end. What we have in Baptist is this. We have come to a point, because of the thinking of fundamentalism and the pressure of religious groups, And, and because of easy believism, we don't want to question the authority of anybody's baptism. The most unloving, terrible thing that you could possibly do is say your baptism is not genuine or your church doesn't... It, it really, because of the doctrine and so forth, we're not going to accept the baptism that your church involves in. That, it's, oh, that's, that's about the worst thing you could do. It's, it's kind of like preaching local church doctrine. If you tell a fundamentalist that you believe that the local church is the only church and it's the body of Christ, I'm going to tell you, they're going to think you are a lunatic and begin to make fun of you. And not only that, when they hear the actions that our churches take, just carrying out the New Testament teaching, they're going to think we're some kind of cult because of the authority that Jesus Himself gave to churches. And they think no church has... The denomination has the authority to do that, or the universal church, but nobody else can say whether somebody's saved or not. Can't question somebody's baptism. However, it is of supreme importance that we guard the membership of our churches and the doctrinal integrity of our churches. So this is my last section. Who is supposed to judge these things? And if they're in the New Testament, who's supposed to carry this out? Well, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for me. So they had a lot of problems in the church at Corinth, but it was still considered a New Testament church at this point. I mean, there are even people in the church that was arguing about the resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians 6, they, they, in chapter 5, they, they just told them to turn them over to Satan. Do you think churches have the authority to do that? Do we or don't we? Well, look what he says in chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another... Go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. So I have a legal claim against Brother Wright. He's cheating me or something. He's broken the law. 
And he says, you're going to go to court? You're in the same church? He said, well, yeah, that's, that's a civil authority. Well, that's not what he thinks. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge, what's that word? Angels. We're going to judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? Look, why would we surrender things that God told us to do? So Paul reproved the church at Corinth because they would not judge earthly matters. Let's go to Matthew 18. I'm trying to get through here. Matthew chapter 18. And verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother, that's a Christian, somebody in your church, if thy brother shall trespass against you, it's a possible thing, it's a subjunctive. If he trespasses, he does your wrong sins against you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Now again, this, so it's a personal offense some, between two Christians. You go talk to him privately. You tell him what he's done. You tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then forget about it and love him. No. This is a command. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That would be one or two more church members. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You know, Baptists can lie, so you've got to get witnesses. And if you should neglect to hear them, you, you don't stop. You say, well, it's just, it's just a matter between me and this guy. Well, I mean, no. It commands us. If you should neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, the church regards him as a heathen man and an, an a publican. Now, Jesus is talking to a, Judeus, a, a, a Jewish audience. Who are the most despised people on the earth in a Jewish group? Publicans. They're the guys paid by the government. They're Jews hired by the government to collect, collect taxes for the Roman government the Roman government pays them, all right, I'm going to pay you this neighborhood of here, you collect the taxes there, we're going to pay you $5,000. Now, you can collect 10000 or twenty or 30000 if you want to, but you give us our 5000 That's the way it worked. So you can imagine how the other Jews thought about this hireling of the Roman government who was given authority to rob them. That's why they hated the publicans. He says, if he won't listen to the church, 
led him to be unto thee as a heathen man, an unsaved man, and a publican. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, this is all the same paragraph, it's the pearl here, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth, the church, not one man, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you, you get what he's saying there? They have the authority of Almighty God. If that church binds it, God binds it. If that church looses, all right, we see there's a misunderstanding here. There's not really any offense. You guys make up. And there's, there's no real offense here. I'm, I'm sorry about this. They loose it. God looses it. That's because they're obeying God when they do this. Verse 19, Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything and ask. That's not me walking down the street and somebody that goes to another church said, Hey brother, i got something I need you to pray with me about. Yeah, I've got this little business I want to start up and... I just need somebody to agree with me so God will do it. That's the way people take that passage. Well, this is in a church. This is a church acting on specific commands and instruction, even if it's just a tiny church. The lighthouse more than that when you had more than that when you started. We had two families. Yet people would, would mock you and call you some kind of I don't know what if you actually acted carrying out the authority that, the new, that Jesus gave to churches. You know this is only one of, one of only two places in all the Gospels where the word church is used. That one's in Matthew 16, and here's the other one. So he says there, Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them from my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, here there am I in the midst of them. <laughs> they got his authority. Oh, but judge not. Judge not. Let's go back to Matthew 7. I'm, you don't have to move. Judge not. It says don't judge. Well, until you get to verse 6, and it says don't cast your pearls before a swine. You know, an unclean animal. Jews, they don't get close to a pig, unless there's money in it, you know, but What about 1 Corinthians 5? Paul says, I've already judged. There's a man immoral with his mother, or probably stepmother. He's in the church. He said, I've already judged. Turn him over to Satan. That sounds pleasant. That sounds like what a cult would do. No, it's just... Bible authority. It is the God-given responsibility and authority of New Testament churches to judge these matters. All right, so here it is. Each New Testament church should decide. They ought to look at the Bible, see what it specifically teaches. They ought to draw principles from that. When uh, Chris got to the end of the Sunday school lesson this morning, he said, what, what are some things that we get out of this passage? It wasn't hard. We Somebody would say something they might have thought. I said, yeah, well, it says that. Yeah, that's what, that would be a practical application of that. But the church, 
decides how they're going to guard the integrity of their baptism. They're going to decide the requirements for accepting the baptism of another church or rejecting it. And establishing that practice, that's the way we guard the doctrines of our church. Can they be Calvinist? Can they be amillennialist? Can they practice believism? Can they be charismatics? You know, believe in the sign gifts, speaking in tongues and all that. Can they be Protestant? I mean, basically rejecting the Baptist doctrine of the New Testament church. At Calvary, one of the primary ways that we carry out this judgment is by having a new members class. And so they come, and it's supposed to be six weeks, but I can't get it all done in six weeks. So it may be eight or ten weeks. And we go through our basic doctrines, and during that time there's questions. We, talk, we even talk about things like music. We talk about dress standards. I mean, those aren't the fundamentals of the faith. Talk about prophecy. And... Obviously, at some point, there are going to be people, and it's not uncommon when they come to our church, that they don't understand or don't agree they've been taught something else. That's one other good reason why it's good when it takes longer than six weeks. And we can talk with them individually and so forth. If a local church doesn't accept the member of another church, the membership or the member of another church, I want you to think about this. Is that an offense? Let's say I, somebody from Calvary comes to Lighthouse and Pastor Byler in talking with him or whatever or whoever it is says uh, um, they're going to need to be rebaptized. Of course this Really, you're going to need to be baptized. That's what we understand. You're going to need need to be baptized. Because maybe he's more thorough than I am and actually maybe it's a guy that we led into our church (laughs) and he was like me. He was baptized by a charismatic in a pond. No church, no authority, heretics. But he finds it out and and so... uh, Say his brother Wright again. He's a good <laughs> brother. Wright says hey, they're not going to let me in the church over there unless I'm baptized. What? They won't accept. Her. No. I say, well, I need to call him and see what's up. He says, well, we found out. You know, his his baptism didn't. It, it's it's got a problem with it, and we think he needs to be baptized again. This is what Brother Mitchell does. Brother Mitchell's not the authority. I'm just telling you how another church does it. He says that if they've got somebody and there's a question, there's some legitimate question about their baptism. Was the church a genuine New Testament church? And they say, well, let's, let's go ahead and baptize you. Let's remove all question and all doubt about it. Is that an offense? Does carrying out that judgment mean that we are better than the other churches? 
No, it means we are trying to guard our church and our church membership. That's all we're doing. Um, it's, it's like this. Some other church say, well, y'all, y'all didn't baptize but three people last year. Yeah, I don't know about that church. Okay, well, that's their judgment. If we say, well, you know, you came out of a Methodist church. They did baptize after you were saved. They did immerse you, but basically they, they believe you can lose your salvation. And we're going to be clear about this doctrine and clear that you understand the gospel and so forth. And this is all we're doing. We're trying to be right before the Lord. And I, I do want you to understand that this is, this is what I believe for, for Calvary. I believe there are better churches in Calvary. There could be even a Calvinist church that's a better church as far as they're obeying and their members being godly and people are praying and witnessing and all that. But I'm responsible for Calvary Baptist Church. And I have to hold fast our doctrine before the Lord. If I know what the New Testament teaches and I don't do that, Now, it was probably confusing, now, this conclusion. It was probably confusing it to a lot of people, maybe maybe not, I hope not, at Calvary when I was baptized after I'd been the pastor for several years. I hope maybe today that I have it better explained now. There's a lot, a lot of them here. And I hope that I've helped and not hindered Lighthouse It's not bigotry. It's the desire to uphold our responsibility to the Lord, to hold fast our doctrine. And it is a recognition that this is the Lord's church, an intention to follow the teaching in the New Testament. And remember this. This is a a very, very important principle for godly living. 1 Corinthians 11.31 If we would judge ourselves, what? We should not be judged. You know, it's like this. You and I do wrong pretty regularly. But if we come to the Lord and say, you know, I was wrong about that. I need to make it right. And I do make it right. Guess what that does? That takes away the Lord's compulsion to spank me. If I judge myself and I take the steps to make things right, then He doesn't have a reason to judge me. And churches ought to continually do that. 
church members. You know, it's not just a game that we do. It's not just a ritual. All right, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, everybody. Let's pray. Okay, I'm, I'm good with God. We should examine ourselves. And so, I hadn't been on, in on the discussions. Pastor Bowner, I've talked some, but probably not near as much as he has with you folks. Um, and that's why I'm here to baptize this afternoon. I, if I thought he was doing something wrong, that'd be pretty bad for me, <laughs> probably, to say, no, we're going to break fellowship over this. But or as I understand it, it's intention to, to lead the church in the right way. And I'll just tell you, we, we came to this thing differently in different circumstances. But if somebody said, no, you shouldn't be baptized again, then I would have to make a choice then. I mean, I, I went to my Baptist pastor in South Carolina and said, uh, uh, well, I got baptized after I was saved, but it was by a guy who was a dentist who uh, believed in the signs and wonders and had visions and all that kind of stuff. And he said to me, well, as long as you're after you were saved, it's okay. <laughs> well, I didn't know any better. And I went through four years of seminary and never had a class on baptism, ever. Never heard any teaching on baptism. I was in the professional ministry degree, Master of Divinity, three years. Nobody ever talked to me about that. And they wouldn't have said it was wrong. But there's more in the New Testament about baptism than just you got to be baptized after saved. I mean, they wouldn't even tell you you need to go under, I guess, depending on who I talk to. Uh, this church is a Baptist church. So I guess, I guess I'm kind of getting over into areas that's not my responsibility here, so I'll just stop there. Um I'm glad to be a part of it.